welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. Our, I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and Caroline's not joining us today, but we have um, a really fun interview, I think, because um, it's all about story, and that, of course, is what this show is always about, but we're really going to delve into the meaning of story in our lives with Alisa Burnick. She is an award-winning writer and journalist. She's the author of many articles, how-to books, and the travel guide, the family sabbatical handbook, the budget guide to living abroad with your children. She's worked as a magazine editor, a radio and television reporter and producer for Minnesota Public Radio and many television stations. Her documentaries appeared on PBS and others, and her articles and essays have been widely published. She's lived in Mexico, Israel, and France, and now makes her home in St. Paul, Minnesota, which I believe is where she started. And you can connect with her online at www.elisabernick.com. Alisa Burnick. The book that we're talking about today is Departure Stories, Betty Crocker Made Matzo Balls and Other Lies. Alisa, this, tell us a little bit about um, the story behind Departure Stories. So Departure Stories is part social history, part memoir, that uses my family's story to explore both anti-Semitism and the struggle for women's rights in Minnesota in the 1960s and early 1970s. This was a time of great upheaval in the United States and a time of upheaval here in the Midwest. And there's a lot of hilarious stories. There's a lot of heartbreaking stories in the book. And what I do is trace the arrival of my family their move out to the suburbs, the very anti-Semitic suburbs of the Twin Cities. And then what happened when my family imploded, and it looks at divorce culture and abuse and trauma, and it also looks at empowering ourselves, using stories to change those traumatic experiences into something that actually lets you feel in control and powerful and does lead to healing. Now, did you, when you set out to write this book, were you, did you come at it from, you know, looking, I'm going to write a book about the social history of this time and, and then realized your family was sort of the, a good illustration of what was going on, or did you start out as a memoir and, and then realize that there were influences that were causing this in your family? Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, my family's always been fodder for my writing. Oh, that's a rich, that's a rich vein. <laughs> uh, and I've been writing about my family in a variety of ways for many years. But this particular book, the memoir, did not start as a memoir. It started first as a novel. And I wrote a novel about, oh, a family in <laughs> The Twin Cities suburbs. <laughs> and, um, in the 60s. And as, in the 60s. And as I, as I started to try to sell the novel, um, the responses I was getting made me realize, okay, I, I still need to work on this book. But then I found out about a really wonderful 
um, program in an organization called AWP, the American Writers Program. And it's called Writer to Writer. And each year they have this contest where you can submit a manuscript to win a chance at working with a published writer who will be your mentor and look at your manuscript and work it through with you. And it's just a wonderful opportunity for a writer. And it was a terrific experience. And I won an opportunity to work with Leslie Schwartz. She's a California writer, has several books out. And she was wonderful to work with. And we worked through the first 100 pages of my novel. And we got to page 100. And she said, well, Elisa, you're a very good writer. But unless there's a murder, suicide, <laughs> an overdose, uh, within the next 25 pages, this is not a novel. It's a memoir. And you need to write it as a memoir. And I was just like, oh, man. And this is not unusual, Monica, that a memoirist uh, doesn't write a memoir, first of all. She writes ah. a novel. <laughs> because there are, we're often revealing some very painful, difficult material. And to write it well and to write a memoir that is nuanced and compelling and interesting, that, that rises beyond just griping about your family difficulties that actually can reach out and touch other people in a more universal fashion. Um, to write that sort of book, you need to unlock lots of doors that you may have intentionally or unintentionally kept locked. Mm. Right, right. And so, so you can always hide behind the character in a novel. Exactly, exactly. Which yeah. may or may not turn have it turn out to be a, a terrific novel. In my case, it did not. <laughs> um, but I, I did take to heart what Leslie told me. And it's not that I was surprised. I, I had been avoiding writing this memoir because my big dilemma, the huge challenge in front of me was how do I find my way in to this story? This story, which for many years was a one-note story told by me and my siblings about my family, and in particular, my mom. Mm -hmm. And the story, as it was told for many years, was that she was nasty, verbally and physically abusive, narcissistic, and nobody that we wanted to have an ongoing relationship with because the truth was she was all those things. And that's where it began and ended for all of us. And to entertain the idea of writing a story about her, as I mentioned earlier, one that was uh, nuanced and entertaining and somehow not only interesting to an audience, but to me. Why would mm. I want to go back over this material? I had to find a way in, and I finally did. And it was to put my journalist hat on, because I am a journalist by profession, and to get curious about why was she like that? What happened in her life to make her so nasty and 
uh, unavailable emotionally and to not have any ability to really nurture herself or or our ch- or us as her children and you did find out that she wasn't raised in a very loving family but you must have known that on some level all along i did of course i i i knew her mom my grandma goldie um i had met all of her just irascible grumpy <laughs> argumentative relatives because they were around our dinner table <laughs> um but the story started to once i understood that the story could be larger that um once i put the journalist hat on and started to discover things like oh well and and, and obviously uh, i'm jewish my mom was jewish my dad was jewish it turns out even though i'm jewish and i was raised in the twin cities i didn't know things like Minneapolis was one of the most anti-Semitic cities in the entire country in the 1940s. Which How am, could I not know that? Which right? is kind As of amazing when you think about it, because it's like um, that's a pretty, what'd you say, pretty low bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, and I'm like, well, what else was going on here that I didn't know about? And how did that affect my mom and my dad? And Jews in general in the Twin Cities. And what, whoa, so much anti-Semitism. And how did this nexus of her being Jewish and female at a time when both Jews and women uh, were not thought very highly of, well, what kind of an effect did this have on her? How did that affect who she was and who she became? And it it was obvious that her uh, development as a person was intensely affected by both time and place. Right. And class. And class. She was raised in a very poor family, as, as many people in general, but Jews in particular during this period of time were in the Twin Cities. They arrived here in the at the uh, start of the last century as refugees not emigrants they were escaping tsarist russia um my my uh, grandfather my dad's dad who's really how we got to this uh to the twin cities uh he had siblings back in tsarist russia and lost a sibling to malnutrition. So we're talking a family that didn't come with very much and had very little to give either to themselves, to each other, to the wider world. So my task in telling the story of my family was to find a way to humanize these people, my mother in particular, rather than demonizing her, which mm. is what I had been doing all those years. Now, you know, without giving away, you know, the end, the or not the end, but, you know, the, how things transpire in this story, your mother has, um, towards the end of her life, you are able to reconcile with her. And were you writing this? Had you already started writing the book before that happened? I did. I had. Yeah. I, I was more than halfway through. Hmm. And I had interviewed her and my siblings and others 
to to start gathering information about their impressions, their memories, which was fascinating because memory is fascinating. And a couple of things happened that really propelled me into this book in a different way, into telling some stories I never thought I would tell. And one of them, so I mentioned I, I wrote this initially as a novel, right? So I had my sister, Lori, my younger sister by five years. She read a portion of my novel and I had to read it because I said, okay, does this like make any logical sense that a 13 year old girl would actually be able to do this? Or am I, is this just way out of the ballpark? And Lori said, well, it makes sense to the degree that it's real. I mean, you actually <laughs> did this uh, and, and, and it stunned me because I really thought I had made this up out of whole cloth. Oh. I did not remember that I had actually done this very dramatic action at age 13. I thought I was making it up for the book. <laughs> And Lori was like, yeah, no, that really happened because I was there. And oh, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my right? gosh. So she so, remembered. You know, it's interesting yeah. because I have a sister five years younger, too. And she remembers traumatic things from our childhood involving me that I don't remember at all. She's, I mean, she said that she was always terrified on my behalf because I would... Um, kind of stand up to our dad a little bit, which she was too afraid to do. And, and she remembers, you know, me getting beaten, which I do, I did, I do remember a few times, but, but the time, like she has some memory of a time that I don't have any recollection of at all. Yeah. 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 And it's very interesting once you start looking at memory. Yeah. And, and you would I, think the I, older sibling would remember more than the younger, but it's, it's actually the case that, that when I started uh, researching memory, well, we change memories. We, every time we dredge up a memory, we change that memory slightly, and then it slips back into our brains. And then the next time we bring it up, we change it again. So you're not remembering. Nobody's remembering the original you're, instance. It's, you're remembering the memory. Right, right. <laughs> right. Um, or the photograph of what happened. <laughs> or, or or the photograph or the story you heard around the table or yeah, yeah. or you, you think it's a memory that actually happened to you and it was a cartoon character that you watched when you were five or know? it was a dream that you had I, exactly. I still sometimes like did I do that or did I dream that <laughs> I still have that yeah, sometimes. absolutely <laughs> I, I was under the impression before I started writing this book that, that memories were like little static snapshots in time and we bring them up and there they are fully formed and then we stick them back in and they just that's the way they are and that is that, that couldn't be farther from the truth so when I was interviewing my siblings in the same way you're talking about chatting with your sister mm -hmm. um, I would remember these instances that for w one of these um, my older brother Dan who's two years older than me I have a just a definite memory of something terrible actually happening in the wintertime. I remember the sledding. I remember the smell of the snow. I remember the sound of my snow pants as I was crawling up the stairs. Um, as my mother was dealing with this, this terrible thing. And my brother's like, no, it didn't happen in the winter, 
Alisa, it was summertime. We were playing tag. That's when it happened. And I'm like, no, it was the winter. So, so those <laughs> weird details, right? You've got these visceral memories, smells and sounds. And, and somebody goes, yeah, no, that's not what happened. But who's right? There's no right or wrong. These stories, these stories you're telling, the truth of them is not these details, summer, winter, snow pants, tag. The, the truth of these stories is the emotional truth that you're telling. Right. And that's the key to a memoir. You know, as a journalist, I'm super sensitive to this idea of truth, truthiness. How truthful can you be in a memoir when you're remembering something that happened when you were five or seven? And as you know, as someone who's read the book, there's a lot of dialogue in this book, right? Yeah. Lots of dialogue. People talking to each other when I'm very young. How could I know these things? Well, I do know these things because I know these people. I know the situations. Do I know the exact words that were said? No, but I know. I remember when something similar happened from maybe when I was eight. And more importantly, as I said, I do remember the emotional truth of right. the situation. Right. You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Elisa Burnick, author of Departure Stories, Betty Crocker Made Matzo Balls and Other Lies. Um, there are some very kind of amusing stories in here, too, and we'll mm -hmm. get to that in a minute. But, but when you're talking about how tricky memory is, there's like there's two kind of aspects of that that can that, you know, one of them is we use people's memories to put other people in jail and, you know, punish people for crime, and how accurate are they really? Mm -hmm. You know, that's... Um, kind of scary, isn't it? It is kind of scary, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And then there's um, the fact that, like you say, the memory, your memories change each time you remember them, and you, I think in your book, you're you're like kind of taking control of that process a little bit or saying that it is possible to take control of that process. And you're not changing the story, but you're changing the interpretation of the story in your own That's mind. That's right. That's a good way of putting it. Um, what I say to myself is I am reframing the story yeah. based on the the. Uh, information and uh, development and maturity level and experiences that I have now. That's what informs the memory and informs the story I will tell now about that memory. And it, one interesting thing, I am not the same person I was when I started writing this book. And I did not become the person I am now until I went through the entire process of writing the book. Mm. So the story I'm telling now about these memories is different 
than what I was telling prior to writing this book. (laughs) (laughs) That's really, that's interesting. That's interesting. Another, you know, for me, I have a tendency and I, and I have other people in my life who also have this same tendency that whatever happens in our life, good, bad, indifferent, we, it's, don't get all that emotionally upset by the event because we say, oh, this is going to make a good story someday. <laughs> well, that may be true as adults. Yes. Because you have yes, some perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right but when right. you're when you're four years old. And oh, someone's no, not, no, right? no, no. Of course not. You're, of course not. And, and then, I mean, anybody who becomes a parent has this experience. Suddenly your own childhood uh, becomes clearer to you in a different way and your relationship to your parents changes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I started really trying to understand the relationship I was having with my mom when I became a parent for the first time. Mm. And it was extremely helpful when she became Grammy instead of mom when i could call her grammy because i was talking about her to my daughter and then five years later to my son um it opened a door that was the initial opening of the door to my mom and that is really i would say where well that's when i first started writing the novel ah was she kinder to your kids than she was to you she was Yes, she was kinder to them. Um, And I could control her access to them in a way that felt comfortable to everyone. I had by then established boundaries on her involvement in my life and my children's life. And she understood at that point that that was the price of admission to my life. Hmm. So, yeah, you know, with my dad, my dad died uh, when uh, very young and I, um, in some way, fortunately, I guess, had got married and had kids very young. And so he got to meet two of his grand, my two children. Um, they, but they were only like four and a baby when he, when he died very mm. unexpectedly, very suddenly. And, um, but for me, his he was so sweet to my kids in a way that he had never been to me or my four siblings we had never seen that sweetness in him and that that was very healing for me and my other siblings didn't get to experience that because you know they were younger they didn't have kids and stuff Mm -hmm. so um and i think for him it was he felt responsible for our behavior and so he had to like we had to toe the line and he was very authoritarian, but he wasn't responsible for my, for my kids behavior. And so he could just be himself with them. And so I really appreciate that opportunity that I had. Yeah. And I, I think in that same way, when I was able to sort of reframe my relationship with my mom and allow her to be Grammy, um, it was a crack in a wall and it did just it gave me an inkling 
that the story we could tell about each other, my mother and I, could be larger. That the one we were telling diminished us both. And we could figure out a way, at least this was my thinking, to engage with each other that allowed both of us to grow our story. And that's what I set out to do. You're listening to Writer's Voices. Our guest today is Elisa Burnick, author of Departure Stories, Betty Crocker Made Matzo Balls and Other Lies. One of the, and you know, the Betty, the Betty, whole Betty Crocker thing and your, and your mother trying to like win the Mrs. Minnesota contest. That's, yeah, that's a really fun story. I don't know if it was fun for you at the time, but um, it's kind of a fun. <laughs> Tell yeah, us a little yeah. bit about that. <laughs> well, she really was the first Jewish contestant in the 1964 Mrs. Minnesota contest, which was the 25th year of this competition. And it was a huge deal in um, Minnesota. And I know this because I found a scrapbook that she kept about it and it had just a ton of articles about this and about all the different contestants and I guess now I she had already um had her health issues by the time I needed these details from her so I never got exactly the story from her but um reading through the lines and using her scrapbook to go on I think that the contestants had to talk about their religion because every single one of them mentioned a church affiliation. So my mom put the name of her synagogue, the Bethel synagogue in St. Louis park. And I read through all the stuff and she's the only one who was Jewish. So um, that was pretty interesting, but yes, uh, I write about this in the book and I, I give you my impression of <laughs> this event and the subsequent dinner table scene afterwards. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to give you a spoiler alert yeah. about whether she was. Yeah. 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 So you'll have to read to find out. You'll have to read to find out. <laughs> Alisa, why don't you read a section from the book for sure. us? Sure. I will. And, the book is separated into two parts, part one and part two. And the first part talks about um, assimilation and anti-Semitism a bit. And this comes from that section, and it's called Emigration to Assimilation. My parents claim they didn't feel anti-Semitism in New Hope but they both admit there were incidents during my childhood when we were singled out as Jews. I remember my mom feeling the weekly slight of never being invited to the Tuesday morning Zeeland Avenue coffee clatch. You call that Minnesota nice, my mom complained each Tuesday as she stood at the kitchen window watching the neighbor ladies carry their tins of cookies and bars to Glenda Thompson's. I can imagine the confusion of those nice Christian suburban ladies meeting my mom in 1965. Not only was she a flaming redhead and Jewish, she was blunt, loud, abrasive, emotional, and dramatic, 
and she spoke over people, something linguist Deborah Tannen says is common among Eastern European Jewish transplants. Tannen describes this way of speaking as high involvement and cooperative overlapping. I bet our neighbors on Zeeland Avenue described it differently. I'm sure my mom's emotionality was disconcerting for the more restrained Swedes, Danes, Germans, and Norwegians in our new neighborhood. They came from cultures that listened when others spoke, where it's considered polite to remain silent when your opinion isn't shared by the group, except, of course, to say, that's interesting. My mom found their behavior rude. Even though I have tried to be neighborly, your precious neighbors have never been interested in welcoming us, she would say each Tuesday from her perch at the sink. Shirley Miller made that quite clear from the start. She loved to tell the story about how Mrs. Miller walked across the street with a tray of ham sandwiches the day we moved in. Linda Miller was my best friend. But my mom didn't like Mrs. Miller because she had six kids. They breed like rabbits, she would say. And also because Mrs. Miller was Catholic. It's not because she's Catholic. It's her holier-than-thou attitude I don't like. My mom and I had the same conversation every time she told the story. Looking back, I suspect some of her resentment stemmed from the fact that even though Mrs. Miller was one of the only Catholics on the block, she was embraced by the Zeeland Avenue Lutheran Sisterhood, and my mom was not. The history of Catholics and Lutherans in Minnesota includes long, simmering tensions over allegiances to parish and priest and the right to establish moral authority. But suburban car culture and cheap financing made it possible for white Catholics to live almost anywhere and still remain an active part of their parochial communities. It must have gnawed at my mom that even as my brother and I trooped to the public school bus stop each morning with everyone else, while the Miller kids flapped around their front yards like blue jays in their blue and white checkered Catholic school uniforms, Shirley Miller was invited to the Zeeland Avenue coffee clutch, and my mom remained an outcast. Mrs. Miller didn't know we don't eat ham, Mom. It wasn't about the ham, Elisa, or Glenda Thompson's lemon bars. I can see the ham making her uncomfortable, but I have no idea what she had against Mrs. Thompson's lemon bars. They were delicious. Oi, that Glenda Thompson, with those new drapes that matched her gold harvest range and refrigerator. Those gold tassels were the ugliest thing I'd ever seen. Just plain tacky. But mom, if you've never been invited inside Mrs. Thompson's house, how do you know what her kitchen looks like? She looked at me like I'd shot her. That has nothing whatsoever to do with this story, Elisa. If you're not interested in what happened that first Tuesday morning after we moved in, then I won't tell you about it. I made an elaborate zipping motion across my lips. My mom's stories were one of her best qualities. I never questioned the veracity of her tales. I just accepted the fact that she could tell you with 100% accuracy what happened that first Tuesday at the Zeeland Avenue neighborhood coffee clutch, even though she wasn't there. <laughs> there they were, all sitting around Glenda Thompson's kitchen table with their coffee and cinnamon swirled coffee cake. We just moved in, remember? Well, I was five, so I don't really remember. 
Did they waste any time making nicey-nice about us? Oh, no. Surely Miller was the one who started the whole thing off. My mom wrinkled her nose. Catholics always feel it's their God-given right to point out the error of everyone else's ways without examining any of their own. She shook her head. That sure, Miller. She didn't even wait until the coffee was poured. The first coffee clutch, told with 100% accuracy by Arlene Burnick and reported by Elisa Burnick, neither of whom was actually there. <laughs> you should have seen that nasty look that new neighbor gave me when I handed her those sandwiches, Shirley Miller said that morning with a sniff. That was a corn cane ham, and you know how tasty that is. She patted an errant curl into place near the crown of her new Eva Gabor wig. She was so ungrateful. Well, she seemed to like my lemon bars well enough, Glenda Thompson said, as she filled the ladies' cups with freshly percolated butternut coffee. And the plate was perfectly clean when she returned it. But they do seem a bit mm, different somehow. I saw a little boy out in the front yard this morning. Doris Christensen said, cute as a button. Couldn't be more than six or seven. She helped herself to a piece of coffee cake from the plate in the middle of the gold-flecked Formica table and lit a cigarette. And the wife, what's her name, Irene? Maybe she's feeling out of sorts with the heat and unpacking and two little ones. And you know how redheads are. Emotional. Eleanor Anderson wiped her lips delicately and leaned forward, dropping her voice to a whisper. Mike says they're a different persuasion from the rest of us. <gasps> what do you mean? They're not Mormons, are they? Glenda Thompson looked horror-stricken. Even worse, Eleanor Anderson said. She pulled up the ruffled bottom of the white lace curtain to peek out the window. They're Jewish. All the women's heads cranked in unison toward the window. Jewish. Not one of them had even met a Jewish person before. And now an entire family of Jews had moved to the block. The kitchen clock ticked loudly, and the gold tassels bounced cheerily at the bottom of Glenda Thompson's new curtains as the lady stared in silence at the shiny black shutters and white aluminum siding of a house across the street. Now, you might be wondering, is this a true story or am I making this up? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Elisa Burnick reading from Departure Stories. Tell us about the title and what mm. the meaning is behind that. Hmm. Well, of course, you can interpret it however you want. <laughs> That's your prerogative. Um, but... As we've talked about, stories are a very important part of our lives. And I tell a lot of different stories in this. One of them I just told you. Um, and this calls into question, what do we mean by truth? What do we mean by um, departures? <laughs> um, because as I point out, because we revise our life story constantly, and we are given the opportunity to revise our memories, our stories, the way we sort of define who we are, 
essentially the moments in our lives that we choose to talk about and remember and to tell us stories are a departure from one moment to the next. Each of these is a departure story. And then the Betty Crocker made matzo balls and other lies. This refers to the <laughs> fact that, you know, Betty Crocker comes from the Twin Cities. She, she was created there. She is a fictional entity. <laughs> and she was actually, the, her first portrait was drawn in 1937. That is the year that my mom was born. And women of that generation aspired to be Betty Crocker. That's where the accolades were in their cooking, in, um, you know, in raising families and having sort of the, the perfect Aussie Harriet sort of, uh, that's what was on TV back then, right? We were all, and the Betty Crocker cookbook, that was the only cookbook my mother had. She cooked out of that cookbook yeah. every day. I got that cookbook <laughs> as as a young, very young, independent person. Um, I was born in 1960, and that cook we were all still cooking on it. Oh cookbook. yeah, oh yeah. So um, so that's a little bit of where that title came from because of course Betty Crocker never would have cooked matzo balls. Jews didn't really exist for the larger culture. Yeah. Almost anywhere, except if you were living in New York or in Los Angeles, maybe a little bit in Chicago. But in the Twin Cities? New Jersey. No. Maybe. Okay, New Jersey. <laughs> New Jersey, you're right. Yeah, you're right. yeah. Um, but beyond a handful of places in the United States, Jewish culture was just disappeared. I mean, it really didn't exist. It wasn't in anybody's mind. And as a Jew myself, I was raised to be assimilated. That was the goal for many, many Jews of my parents' generation. But there's a big trade-off there. You know, there's there's a loss of identity when you assimilate. Yeah. Yeah, especially if you're assimilating into a culture that thinks that you killed Jesus. <laughs> I know. Exactly. Exactly. Like people said that to me on the bus. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And and it was like, huh? Yeah. What are first of all, who is Jesus? Because in Judaism, we don't really talk about Jesus. We do we deal with the Old Testament. Right. Jesus right. is the New Testament. And we don't go that far. So when I was, when, when a fifth grader said to me on the bus, when I was in third grade, your family killed Jesus, I was like, um, I don't know Jesus and I don't think our family killed anybody. But of course, when I got home and I said that to my mom, did we kill Jesus? She's like, oh boy, oy, 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 oy. I think that's what she said. Yeah. They don't know their own history. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Romans killed Jesus. Yeah. So, um. Yeah. Right. And and I was the first generation of assimilated Jews. So my parents grew up um, exposed to overt anti-Semitism all around them. The ads were still saying Gentiles only, you know, the want ads, right, in the Twin Cities. And, and there was housing, a lot of housing discrimination. Discrimination, housing covenants. covenants. Yeah. Yep. Yep. All that stuff. And the Twin Cities is 
dealing with that legacy, um, in particular around African-Americans yeah. who had were absolutely prevented from any home ownership more than almost anywhere else in the country. Yeah. And, you know, if you if if your grandparents and your great grandparents never had the opportunity to buy a home, oh. never had the opportunity to build any generational wealth, Absolutely. it has an impact to this very day. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. And, and so unlike people of color, by the mid 1950s, Jews were considered white. Now, they had not always been considered white. But after World War Two, once, well, you know, yeah. the Nazis, the Holocaust, um, Jews by then were considered white. So they were allowed. And I say allowed, meaning there were no covenants that strictly prohibited Jewish people. There had been earlier in that in, in the last century but by the 1950s there were no longer any housing covenants and there were economic policies that encouraged white educated middle class people to move to the suburbs and 60% of the city's population around the country did moved out to the suburbs yeah. but people of color could not yeah so the, the fallout for me of all that, yes, I had privilege to move out to the suburbs, but because nobody else could, no people of color lived out there. And Jews were as different as it got. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like everybody was a white Christian. Yeah. And we were Jews. Wow. And I remember... Um, I think I was like eight. We the the grocery store chain that I grew up with was called the Red Owl, and I remember coming out of the Red Owl at Christmas time, and there were the Salvation Army workers with their um, wearing their Christmas hats mm -hmm. and their um, ringing the bell, and I decided to try out an experiment, and I said they said Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, and I said and Happy Hanukkah to you. And they stopped ringing their bell. <laughs> and they thought like I was trying to pick a fight or something with them. Aww. It was very odd. And my mom said, don't talk to them anymore. Oh, you know, it was very, very strange. And, um, and, and, but I did hear something often and I'm not, I'm not a, a, a spiritual person. You know, I consider myself an ethnic Jew. Right. And I'm I'm married to a non-Jew. And um, something I heard growing up often was, well, you don't look Jewish. <laughs> as a compliment, right? As a compliment, <laughs> as a compliment. But if you examine that, no. it's not neutral and it's not a compliment. You're no. complimenting me for looking like what I am, number one for not looking like what I am because yeah. looking like what I am is a bad thing. So yeah. aren't I yeah. lucky? I don't look like that. Oh know? man. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So as you started writing this memoir, you said you interviewed your siblings. How did they react to the fact that you were going to kind of air the family laundry? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
well. <laughs> now, they they have had the great misfortune to have a sister as a writer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or a writer as a sister, maybe. Yeah. Um, so they know, and, and I have written, as I said, my entire life about my family. I've written poetry. I've written short stories but you know i've been writing for years about it and and i've never hidden it and i and as i mentioned to you i allowed them to read bits of my writing and when i got the manuscript done they all got to read it prior to my submitting it okay um i wanted to gauge whether they would be uncomfortable or not about specific things so it was not my intention ever to embarrass anybody or um, to make anybody super uncomfortable, knowing that I wouldn't be making people uncomfortable. Yeah. Because there's no way not to make people uncomfortable, right? Um, but none of them, which was sort of surprising to me, actually, none of them ever, ever said, don't do it. I don't want to be mentioned. Um, that. I want you to take that out. Nobody ever asked me to take a bit of it out. Wow. Because it's true. All <laughs> of it is true. And more importantly, even than that, I believe they all felt a little bit of healing from this process. I know I did. And I believe, and this this was um, not something I intended at the start because I didn't know this would happen at the start. But being able to reframe and reimagine the stories of our childhood, to expand them, made all of us grow larger. Mm. And that, that was tremendously healing. Wow. As I was reading this, of course, I had a, it was painful to read some of what of the neglect that you experienced and abuse um and what i keep thinking is okay so we understand your mother and how her upbringing um affected her ability to be a mother and also not just her upbringing but the the limitations that were imposed on her and basically made her kind of crazy you know, that she couldn't, she couldn't do what she wanted to do with her life. Right. And, right. and your father, you know, his upbringing was even more bizarre. And he had limited ability to really be there for you. But weren't there any other adults anywhere? That is a great question. <laughs> who yeah. stepped yeah. in or who could step in or who noticed? Right. So it is something I've been very thoughtful about because it is a question I have received from others. Right. Yeah. But I want I want you to think back to that time. So this is the 1960s. This is a time when spankings were normal, where large families uh, were normal, and the older siblings often looked after the younger siblings. Uh, one statistic really surprised me when I looked at how much time parents 
mothers. And by that, I mean mothers, because remember, fathers were not involved with their children in the same way, in particular with their female children. There, and there were no sports teams for, for girls, organized sports for girls back then. Right. Um, so there was not going to be any communing at, at softball practice, right, between dads and, and daughters. Um, but even moms spent maybe three hours a week with their kids in intensive time because they were distracted with many other things, the cooking, the cleaning. My mom worked outside the house half time. That was very unusual for that period of time. You mentioned how frustrated she was. She was a career woman without a career. Yeah. Right. I right. mean, she ended up going through dental hygienistry school and became a dental hygienist. She hated doing that work. But it, it was, was really one of the only things, right, that she right, could do. Right, right. Um, even, even I'm your, about the same age as you, and even for us, or just a few years older than us, the only career options for women were teacher, secretary, or nurse. You got it. That was it. it. That was it. Yeah. And um, now, did neighbors notice she was screaming at us and beating us and that kind of thing? Maybe. But remember, we were somewhat outcasts. Yeah. And my mother, in particular, had no friends in that neighborhood. Um, they didn't invite her to the coffee clutch. Yeah. Uh, they really didn't. And she, she was not a friendly person either. So I, I don't want to insinuate that they went, that they were constantly being rebuffed and finally said you know, no, if you don't want our company, we won't press it on you. It's just that they avoided her and she avoided them. So yeah. did they know? I don't know. Would they have stepped in? I doubt it. Yeah. People that people really thought that was your private business. Yeah. yeah. And frankly, how comfortable would any of us be stepping into another family's business? Even today, yeah, even today. Even today, even today, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, although if you notice, if it's really egregious, you, there are... At it, school or... Yeah, yeah. they're required right, exactly. to report it and, and something is, would probably be done. But right. you might not have been at that level quite either. No, and I don't think we were. I don't think that... that you would have seen bruises all over our bodies. Um, you were getting you know, fed most of the we time. We were definitely getting <laughs> fed. Um, yeah. You know, she did start to neglect us more uh, when my parents separated and she uh, was involved with this other man, a married man. Um, we became far less interesting to her, certainly. Um, and then it was my older brother and I raising the two younger kids. Children. Yeah. yeah. And, you know. Yeah. When she left you when you were eight mm -hmm. to take care mm -hmm. of the baby and the mm -hmm. three-year-old. Right. That's, that must have been really traumatic. Yeah. That, that was a bummer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to say the least. Um, and I was thinking back on that recently. But, for example, the family, the Millers, um, they had six kids, the Catholic family, and 
the oldest girl was my good friend and she was often responsible for looking oh, after oh, yeah. her younger siblings, right? Yeah, yeah. So it does seem weird now, much weirder now. I know. A different sense of responsibility. But back then, I'm not sure it would have been perceived as as nutso as we think it I know, did now. I know. Right? I, it was, we, we teased my mom about this and, and tell her, you know, that if it happened today, she'd probably get turned in. But when my, when my, I was the oldest of five, or the oldest daughter, the second oldest, but the oldest daughter, five kids. And when I was 13, my parents, we lived in Pennsylvania. They were, we were going to be moving to Iowa. My parents, my older brother and my next younger brother all came out to Iowa to get ready, get things ready out here and left me at home for a week with the eight-year-old and the five-year-old. <laughs> That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. we don't do those things anymore. No, we, no, we, we look no. at them differently. Right, we, right. We, we think, hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's some poor decision-making going on there. But back but, then. But the fact is I was very mature. I was completely capable. My grandparents were five miles away. They came and had us for dinner once. That's the only time I saw them. Wow. During that week. But we had neighbors I could rely on. You know, it, it wasn't yeah. it wasn't scary for me. And then later, uh, the here's the really funny thing. My mom always kept a journal and mm -hmm. I read she had shown me this part or she was showing me something in it that stories that she'd written about my younger brother. And it was around this time. And I was so I was reading in the back, which I probably shouldn't have done. But and and she was talking about you know, my dad wanting her to take this trip and um, she didn't know what she was going to do with the kids. And then she said, Monica said she'll stay with them. <laughs> uh -huh. So it was apparently mm -hmm. my idea. Um, or, or a story that, that she created. Uh-huh. But I think, I think it's probably quite likely. I always felt completely grown up from a very young age. I never felt like a kid. <laughs> well, and I think when you have responsibilities thrust upon you, often you can rise to them. Yeah. So yes. Sometimes you can't, but yes. often you can. That is true. That is true. So just um, briefly, because we only have a few minutes left, I wanted to ask you about this other book, the Family Sabbatical Handbook. Tell me a little mm. bit about that. <laughs> well, yes, that was a wonderful adventure. So uh, about 20 years ago, my husband and I quit our jobs and moved to Mexico. And we Whoa. lived there for 18 months. Yes. And our kids were two and seven when we moved down there. We did not speak any Spanish. We did not know anybody. But... We had Why? Been well, <laughs> because we had been travelers earlier in our life. We had traveled together quite a bit, my husband and I. And during one of our last trips, we met this super cool family. We met actually met two different families who were doing something similar. And remember, this is before the Internet was really a thing and before you could work from abroad easily. Or right, like right, that. right, right, right. Um, so. We said to each other way back, this was when we were in our mid-20s, when we, when we first were traveling and meeting all these interesting families with their, you know, young people traveling with their very young children. <laughs> um, 
we thought, hey, if we ever have kids, let's do this. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we, by the time we had our second kid, we were in our early 40s and it was like, okay, let's do it. So we did. We, we rented wow. out our house in St. Paul. We moved to Mexico and it was a marvelous adventure. It was amazing. We learned the language. Our, our daughter, who's the oldest, she was at the, just the right age to um, be immersed in, in language. And so she mm. speaks Spanish fluently, oh. the Mexican accent. And I, as a journalist, decided to write a book about it. So wow. that's the book that you're referring to. And it's why we did it, how we did it, and how you can do it. So that's mm. the book. Oh, cool. And you lived elsewhere too then, other than Mexico? Lived in France for a while, lived in Israel. Um, I have relatives in Israel. And um, it's it's been, you know, I, I mean, it's been an interesting time. And I'm actually going back to San Miguel for three, that's where we lived originally, ah. Mexico, San Miguel de Allende. And I'm actually returning there this winter because now I can work from there. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm a magazine editor, uh, but my day job and I'm going down there to get away from the winter. Sorry. Sorry, everybody. I don't want to uh. lower this over <laughs> you, but I'm just going to try it and see if it works. So. Wow. Well, yeah. congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. Well, Thank you so much for being with us today, Elisa. And um, I, enjoy, I enjoyed reading Departure Story. It made me think about the role of memory and story and reframing stories and how you can really change, you know, so much. I, real, I truly believe that so much of, of our life is based on the stories we tell about ourselves. Absolutely. And so pick a good one to tell <laughs> yep you got it you got it i could not say that better myself <laughs> and we always close with the quote and i'm gonna um this is from virginia wolf about um about memory i can only note that the past is beautiful because one never realizes an emotion at the time it expands later and thus we don't have complete emotions about the present only about the past mm. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you and have fun in San Miguel de Allende. See you all next week on Writer's Voices. Mm -hmm.